overwhelmed by the love of God. A God who's made each one of us in his image and a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. I was a GP for 25 years and I spent a lot of that time involved in teaching medical ethics and also on a number of ethics committees. And so that's the expertise I'm bringing today, is my expertise in ethics and in healthcare. But this is really about God. And what I'm praying for today is that we'll all be open to what God is nudging us to do. How he's nudging us, maybe, to get involved in this issue of the value of life that affects all of us in some way or other. Now, I have a propensity for when I'm getting excited to speak quickly. If I do, tell me and slow me down. And if I say things that um, I'm not explaining very well, again, just stick your hand up and I'll try and explain it again. Because I'm really hoping to make this accessible to everybody. Because these things actually aren't that complicated. We can sometimes use big words to make what is actually not complicated, complicated. In the last few months, I've come across these situations in friends or in family. I've got friends who believe that life begins at conception, but who are unable to conceive naturally. The question they were facing is, do they fertilize more embryos than they need, knowing that they might need to destroy some after? I've got some other friends who are infertile, the husband carries a genetic problem whereby they are very, very, very unlikely to conceive naturally. And they've been trying for seven years. Do they create a number of embryos to choose the one that is disease-free? I'm saying that in inverted commas. And destroy the rest. Another friend with a learning disability and a good quality of life was admitted to hospital and her value of life was questioned in a way that it wouldn't have been questioned if she hadn't had a learning disability. There was an assumption that with a disability you wouldn't want to carry on living. My own mother has got a complex dementia. But actually, having said when she was younger, if I land up like that, turn the machine off, I don't want to live like that. She is enjoying her life and she's got a better relationship with her saviour than she has had for the last 30, 40 years. And yet people say you wouldn't let a dog live like that. And then this last week on Facebook, Liz Carr, who's in a Silent Witness, she was voicing her concerns about assisted dying, seeing that if assisted dying were to be legalized, she as a person with a disability would be very likely to be discriminated against. Those are issues about the value of life, and we're going to look at those towards the end of the talk. But first of all, what I'd like to do is spend a bit of time mapping the terrain. Just like if you're going on a journey, you look at the map book, it's good to find out where the key points were. And I wish I'd done that on our way down today when I told my husband to carry on the A46 when he should have gone off on the A50, A52. So we're going to map the terrain. And the terrain we're going to look at is, who is God? Then we're going to think, who are we? We're going to think a little bit about what is our purpose? What is our context? 
And then, in the light of that, move on to ethics at the beginning of life. Thinking about what do we need to ask. Believing in all things, the word of God is living and active and is sharper than a two-edged sword. So who is God? Well, where do we stop? Yes, he's holy. He is love. He's forgiveness, grace, mercy, justice and compassion. And so many other things. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious Lord, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And when we come to ethics, there's something about the love of God that we really need to know and take on board. But that's to be held with justice. It's not an anything goes love. It's love that has boundaries. But God is a God who loves, who cares, who's just, who is merciful, who has compassion. Who are we? Well, we are created by God. We are his delight and his pleasure. We are made in his image and in his likeness. Even though we've mucked it up and marred it, he has redeemed us. We are redeemed sinners. But we're not quite there yet. I'm sure all of you are like me, works in progress. God loves us as we are, but he loves us far too much to let us stay that way. We each have an inherent dignity in being created by this God who loves us. And yet we're not all individuals. We're part of the body. We are a body of Christ. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body is affected. John Donne many years ago said, no one is an island. And we're all one in Christ Jesus. What is our purpose? Don't you just love the Psalms? They're the one book in the Bible where we speak to God. The heavens declare the glory of God. From the lips of children and infant babes you've ordained praise. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Ignatius of Loyola, who is a Catholic saint, said human beings are created to praise, reverence and serve God our Lord. The Westminster Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And scripture. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is man's purpose? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Again, acknowledging that he is at work in our lives. I love this promise in Corinthians. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed. But God doesn't leave us without guidance. Going back to Micah, he's shown us what's good and what the Lord requires of us. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And I want to highlight these two bits from those two passages. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Walking humbly with our God. It is about our daily journey with God. And in our daily journey, he reveals and helps us negotiate all the complexities we have to deal with in life. 
the Bible might not talk about many of the new technologies like cloning and things like that. But the Bible is living and active. And our God is walking with us if we are willing to walk humbly with him. But the good news is it's not an if. He's always there. We just need to turn and listen. What is our context? Well, our context in the UK is very complicated. There's something called the inverse care law. In the UK, if you are poor, you tend to have less access to decent health and you tend to live less long. If you're wealthy, you tend to have better access to health and you tend to live longer. And if new initiatives are put forward for health, it tends to be the healthy and the wealthy that access them. We're living in a time where we know that care of the elderly has not been good. Look at the Midstaff's inquiry. You'll have heard about it in the newspapers. Where actual care of the elderly is often underfunded. People looking after older people are often paid less, minimum wage, if they're lucky. What does that say about how we value our older population? And those with a disability... This headline here, far more needs to be done across health and care services to improve the treatment that people with learning disabilities receive. My son works in a Christian community for adults with learning disability. Their experience of accessing health care is very different to the experience that many of us might receive if we turn up in the hospital. What does that say? We live in a society that's just introducing a new test where all pregnant women can have their blood screened to see if the child that they're carrying might have Down syndrome. And in the UK, if you have a child with Down syndrome in the womb and you have the test to diagnose that, 95% of people then go on to have a termination of pregnancy. So actually the number of people with Down syndrome being born is going to decrease. There was an advert I'm going to show you in a minute in, in France that was, that was banned. The French court banned this advert that stars children with Down syndrome because they were concerned of the impact on women who'd had a termination. Just have a look at this advert. Oh, 
capitare una pattonetta e andare a vivere da solo. A volte sarà difficile. Io che ti ascolto. Guarda, è possibile. E se papà è per tutte le mere. Dear future mom. Tuo figlio potrebbe essere finito. Come la sono io. E tu sarai heureuse aussi. Vero mamma. Sally Phillips has been very active. She's got a child with Down syndrome. And just trying to raise the profile of what's going on. Because if you're a mother with a pregnancy that you've had diagnosed with a child with Down syndrome, it's not easy. Um, they have those pressures, pressures on these mums to decide to go for a termination. How can you possibly have a child with Down syndrome? It's going to cost the state. One friend who's got a son with Down syndrome is talking about somebody she met walking along in the street with her child with Down syndrome, who's the baby in a pram. How could you let your child be born? And in this whole situation, yes, there is a child that might have Down syndrome, but there's also the family who are going to face societal pressure, knowing that for their child to get the care they need is going to be a battle. So this is not just about the rights or wrongs. It's about how we can live as a compassionate society, loving the mums that sometimes make the decision to have a termination, realizing that for them it's a very difficult decision. But at the same time, thinking what are we doing in a society where 95% of those who are diagnosed with a child with Down syndrome in the womb decide to have a termination. I'm not at risk. I'm a brother, son, friend. Is that really what our society is saying? And on the right-hand side of this slide is the Wilberforce Medal, which says, am I not a man and a brother? But this is the context we're living in. You can, you can terminate the pregnancy of a child with a disability that's de decided to be a serious disability up to term. That's 40 weeks. That's much later than you can have a termination for anything else. That's the beginning of life. Well, let's go to the end of life. We know that in many places within the world, or a number of places within the world, people could have their lives actively ended. Belgium and Holland are two examples. And this is another headline. Number of mentally ill patients killed by euthanasia in Holland trebles in a year as doctors warn assisted suicide is out of control. Headlines, you always need to look beneath the surface because often they've got an agenda that they're spinning. But sadly, the indications are that in places where assisted suicide and euthanasia are legalized, there is the slippery slope. And whereas the idea that was that it was going to be introduced for those people who chose to have their lives ended, actually that's now no longer just the case. People are having their lives ended who have not asked it. 
So the context we're living in is a context of health inequalities, discrimination. We also live in a context where, if I go into teenage, some teenagers in the sixth form, um, what I hear a lot about is their autonomy. It's my right to make my own decision. And the assisted dying, assisted suicide, assisted suicide arguments have very much been made about that. It's my right to decide what I want to have happen with my life. Forgetting that actually we're not just individuals, we're in community. In the church we call it the body of Christ. But actually we live in community in the world. And one man's decision does make a difference to somebody else. And we also seem to forget the lessons of history. If we look back at the euthanasia movement in Nazi Germany, it was a movement that started off small, where the lives of people with disability and mental illness were ended and gradually extended. Leo, Leo Alexander said this in the Nuremberg Trials. The beginnings at first were merely a subtle shift in the emphasis in the basic attitude of the physicians, the doctors. It started with the attitude basic in the euthanasia movement that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. This attitude in its early stages concerned itself merely with the severely and chronically sick. Gradually, the sphere of those to be included in this category was enlarged to encompass the socially unproductive, the ideologically unwanted, the racially unwanted, and finally, all non-Germans. As soon as you decide that one life is not worth living, the question then is, whose life is worth living? So that's the context we're looking at. Now, the first area we're going to explore in a bit more detail is the beginning of life. And when you come to beginning of life issues, there are so many there at the moment. Genetic screening, artificial reproduction, cloning, stem cells, designer babies, chimeras, mixing of man and human. What I'm going to focus on today is the artificial reproduction, because that's the one we're more likely to come across. That's the one I come across parishioners and friends who've been involved in this, or had to face decisions. IVF has been around for many, many years now. So we're going to look a little bit at that, and we're also going to look at pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. IVF just means in vitro fertilization, fertilization of a human egg outside the womb. But before we do that, just have a, a little ponder. When do you think the Spirit of God is breathed into a new human being? Think of Jesus, the incarnation, God become man. Amazing. But at what stage of development was Jesus when he started his human life in Mary's womb? Because that helps us think, when does life begin? Does life begin at conception? Does it begin with the formation of the nervous system, about 14 days? And that's the dateline the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority say you can experiment on embryos up to. Does life begin when you can live outside the womb? 
Some people do argue that. Or at birth itself. Is it when they can reason? And there are some philosophers that would argue for that, arguing that some forms of animal life have got more right to life than a human baby that cannot, cannot reason. And this is called the status of the embryo. What status does the embryo have? And what's quite interesting is if you look at secular science, most secular scientists will say that life begins at conception. The HFEAs calculates when you can experiment on an embryo from conception. Robert Winston, in his TV series, looking at early, early life decisions, calculates life beginning from conception. And in secular science, probably most people would agree that it's human. What they dis disagree about is the value that that life has. Is it a person? Now, in Scripture, I would say that Scripture seems to indicate that the human embryo is alive, that the human embryo is human. And for me, the biggest proof is the incarnation. When did Jesus become that holy embryo? And for me, from conception, man is made in the image of God. Psalm 139 tells us, It was you who formed me. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. And in Psalm 139, it's just beautiful. There are five different Hebrew words used for the way that God fashions us in the womb. Formed, knitted, made, intricately woven, fashioned. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's something about God knowing us before we were even conceived. Isaiah 49, the Lord called me before I was born. So in scripture, you have got an acknowledgement that before we were either conceived, God knew us. Psalm 139 again, in your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them existed. Again, God's foreknowledge of us. Job 10.8, you fashioned and made me. And then in Job 3, we get this wonderful verse. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man-child is conceived. I think it is a wonderful verse. I think Job is an amazing book about suffering and God's presence in suffering. Now the conception word here may well not be what we understand by conception today. But to me, that verse speaks of a night when conception happened. And in Psalm 51, indeed I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. Again, we can't say that conception in scripture means what we mean by conception now. But looking at scripture, the most obvious answer is that we started our life. The Holy Spirit was breathed in us at conception. Matthew 1.20, Jesus the embryo. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then we have Mary meeting Elizabeth. The first person to recognize Jesus for who he was is the embryo the fetus, the unborn child, John, in his mother Elizabeth's womb, as he leaps. And Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And Jesus, as the holy embryo, I think is really good for us to really ponder on. Because Hebrews tells us that Jesus was like us in every way. He took on our same nature. And if Jesus wasn't like us in every way, then the whole story of salvation doesn't work. When does life begin? When do you think in scripture God is saying that life begins? And then once you've decided that, you then need to think, okay, if life begins at conception, or maybe you'll decide at a later point, what value does that life actually have? There's often a question put, if you were in a fire and you had a whole urn of embryos that are frozen and you have a child of two, and the fire is happening, do you take the vat of embryos or do you take the child? What value does an embryo have? And then the question I've raised earlier, are the unborn with disabilities worth less? We're made in the image of God. We're made in his image and likeness. We have an inherent dignity. When does life begin? And if life does begin at conception, if life does begin when the Holy Spirit is breathed in us at conception, what duty and responsibilities do we have to our unborn brothers and sisters? I used to find this really quite difficult because at the moment what's happening as well is lots of experiments are being done on human embryos and we're getting mixing of man and human. And then I came across this really helpful quote by Frances Etheridge who looks at these ethical issues as well. And I'm going to read it out because actually it can sometimes be very difficult. We can sometimes get quite despondent when we look at what's going on. If a human person begins and, at the same time, the humanity of the subject is compromised through an experiment which introduces the biological substance of an animal into the bodily expression of the person, mixing human and animal, then even if the creature is aborted, it follows that at the resurrection, whatever became of that human person will be fully revealed. In other words... We will fully discover the full impact of our decisions on the day of our death and on the day of judgment, the day of resurrection of the dead. Whatever the claims of the experimentalist, the reality of what has been done to a human being will be apparent to all. And at the same time, the participation of all will be revealed with all its attendant degrees of responsibility, involvement, endorsement, indifference and commercialization. let me take you back to the beginning. Then even if the creature is aborted, it follows that at the resurrection, whatever became of that human person will fully be revealed and shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So that's a little bit about beginning of life, ethics, in vitro fertilization, so how does this actually impact on my infertile friends who discover that the husband is carrying a genetic abnormality? 
Do they create a large number of embryos to choose the one that is abnormality-free and destroy the rest? And how might they do that? This is the process of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. You create a human embryo, and at the eight-cell stage, you take away a cell. You look at it under the microscope in a special technique, in a special way, to identify which embryos are carrying particular characteristics. Now, in the UK, you can look for genetic disorders. You can also look for attributes that will create a sibling to be a savior sibling. You can use it for sex selection. You can use it for designer babies. But in the UK, we have a selected number of things that you can use these tests for, but the number of tests are actually expanding. And there's a real pressure to widen them even further as technology increases. Cancer-free designed babies get approval. It's now no longer just for abnormalities you might be carrying. It can be for a risk of something you might have in the future. So, for example, I could have a risk of breast cancer uh, that's higher than normal. I could get my embryos tested to discover which one of my embryos might have a higher risk than expected of breast cancer, and those embryos could be screened out. This whole concept of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is covered in the book My Sister's Keeper. Have any of you read it or watched the film? It's quite a good one to watch and actually discuss because it does raise a lot of the complexities of these issues. The book's great, the film's great, but the book and the, book and the film end differently, just to warn you. It's also the subject of a film called Gattaca, which came out in 1997. That's kind of 21 years ago, before PGD was possible. And I'm going to show you a clip from that now. Like most other parents of their day, they were determined that their next child would be brought into the world in what has become the natural world. Your extracted eggs, Marie, have been fertilized with Antonio's sperm. After screening, we are left, as you see, with two healthy boys and two very healthy girls. Naturally, no critical predispositions to any of the major inheritable diseases. All that remains is to select the most compatible candidate. First, we may as well decide on gender. Have you given it any thought? We would want Vincent to have a brother, you know, um play with. Of course you would. Hello, Vincent. Uh, you have specified hazel eyes, dark hair, and uh, fair skin. I have taken the liberty of eradicating any potentially prejudicial conditions, uh, premature baldness, myopia, alcoholism, and addictive susceptibility, uh, propensity for violence, obesity, etc. We didn't want, I mean, diseases, yes, but... Right. We were just wondering if, if it's good to just leave a few things to, to chance to give your child the best possible start. Believe me, we have enough imperfection built in already. Your child isn't needing additional burdens. And keep in mind, this child is still you. Simply the best of you. You could conceive naturally a thousand times and never get such a result. That's how my brother, Anton, came into the world. A son my father considered worthy of his name.
shows the process of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. The front of the video cover says there's no gene for the human spirit. Again, it's a good film to watch because what it does is it highlights the complexity of things and how when we place all our faith in genetics, we're actually going completely down the wrong way. I won't tell you and give you any spoilers from the film, but it really is worth a watch, even if it's old. Because PGD raises lots of issues. Does it work? Is it safe? How risky is it? What about losing embryos? What's the effect of being a saviour sibling? What are the limits? For one successful pregnancy, you have to create about 50 embryos. That means that 49 aren't being used. What do we think of that if life begins at conception? Also, sometimes it goes wrong. Family sues over design a baby that wasn't what was expected. But think about it. You're a couple that want to have a child. You're not going to have a child off your own genetics if you use natural conception. You're just not going to get pregnant. And do you use PGD to get pregnant? What do you do? And how do we as a church actually help couples facing those decisions? They want a child. Why shouldn't they have a child? Technology says we can, but should we? How do we as a church respond to the pain of childlessness? But at the same time, how do we as a church respond to the destruction of human embryos? What do we do? What's God's calling on us? And then we also need to think that actually a significant number of contraception and agents that are used in the UK today have as one of their methods of acting the fact they prevent a fertilized embryo implanting in the lining of the womb. God is holy. He's love. He forgives. Grace and mercy. Justice and compassion. Having said it's not complicated, actually when you come down to it, how do we make these decisions unless we are walking humbly with God and open to him and really willing to engage with the complexity of the life that we're facing? What might Jesus do? How do we show the love of God to our unborn neighbor? How do we show the love of God to our hopeful parents? Yes, it is complicated. God is holy. He's love. He's a God of forgiveness and new life. But he also sees things in the light of eternity, which we don't. So that's a quick skim through the beginning of life, value of life. It's complicated. But unless you know when life begins... Unless you've thought about these issues before you face them, how are you going to be able to work things through? And the same applies to end of life, because there's one thing for sure, it's something that's going to affect us all, unless Jesus comes back before we get there. And if you think about it, there's loads of issues that you can face towards the end of your life, in friends or in family. And as you get older, I know some of you are quite young here, but as you get older... You see it so often, issues that we need to face. 
Things about decisions, about your care towards the end of life, about saying yes or no to treatments, about confidentiality, about the fact that we're not all islands. If you've got somebody with dementia being cared for by somebody else at home, actually the person that's doing the caring often needs respite just to be able to carry on caring. The decisions can't just be made about one person. Then there's resources. A lot of money gets spent at the end of life. Quality of care. Elder abuse. Elder abuse is very common. Euthanasia and assisted suicide are really, really rare compared to everything else that we're dealing with. And yet, if you looked at the press, you'd think it was the main thing. Assisted dying. There have been so many different assisted dying bills in Scotland and England over the last 10, 20 years. It's continually in the press. This Google image here. 2015, 2014, 2013, 2006, it's always in the press. And again, it's usually the narrative about my right to choose. In 2006, it was about suffering, about not letting people die in pain. But palliative care is so good now, there's very few occasions where people actually will have pain that can't be controlled. There are occasions, but they're very few. And the argument then became about autonomy. Now money's coming in. Money's now far more, um, far more often used in looking at end-of-life decision-making arguments than it was 20 years ago. But it's my choice. Patrick Stewart is one of the many celebrities that is on the website of Dignity in Dying that used to be called, used to be called the Voluntary Euthanasia Society saying it's my right to choose what happens at the end of my life. And they're talking about assisted suicide, but as assisted suicide doesn't work every time, about one in ten go wrong, you can't have assisted suicide without euthanasia. The two have to go hand in hand, because if it doesn't work, what are you going to do? And the public view we keep getting told is that 82% think that assisted suicide is a good idea. We should be able to decide to do what we want to do. And we get told that different places in the world that have this actually have a policy that works very, very well. You start looking at the policies, they're not working quite so well. And the last debate we had in Parliament, MPs overwhelmingly rejected assisted suicide. Doctors don't think it's a good idea. Palliative care doctors don't, physicians don't, elderly care doctors don't, psychiatrists don't. GPs don't. Why? Are we just being arrogant? The BMA has said this. The BMA has a clear policy opposing euthanasia. It accepts that legally and ethically patients can refuse life-prolonging treatment. Nevertheless, it's opposed proposals to allow interventions such as lethal injection whose sole purpose is to end life. Is this arrogance or is it deeper understanding? I used to love collecting these from Tesco's when I had to go to Tesco's. Can you see it? One pound twenty-seven for one, two for three pounds. So often what we're fed in the media actually is not telling us what really is going on. I've got a whole load of these. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. 
I think part of the reason that doctors are so um, concerned about assisted dying is because of professional guilt. You go back to the Nazi doctors and you see how doctors were so complicit in Hitler's program. But I think there's also something about the ambiguity of the terms that are in all the assisted dying acts. Painful, incurable disease. Well, arthritis is painful, incurable. Migraine is often painful and incurable. So is depression painful and sometimes incurable. You need tablets long term. Low back pain for some people is a long term problem. Actually, so is a bunion painful and long term. I know, I've got one. But actually, a painful and curable disease is a really ambiguous term. And also, you often can't predict how long somebody's going to live until you get very, very close to the end of life. So to say somebody who's got six months to live is completely ridiculous. You can't do it. So there's something about medics realizing the ambiguity of terms. But I think there's also something about death and dying not being talked about very much. Dying is difficult to diagnose. It's often seen as failure. It's often seen as being poorly managed healthcare. There's often fear of dying and fear of being a burden. The number of people who have intimated to me when I was in the GP surgery that they might like to have their lives ended, and it does happen. It's often introduced very, very subtly, but it's a fear of being a burden. I had one chap that came in who was basically saying, well, when it gets that way, you'll help me out, won't you? And when we explored that with his wife in the room, he was just afraid of being a burden. Woody Allen, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. So that's another reason that people can actually think assisted suicide is a good idea, about having control, about fear of dying. But also I think the stories that we face in the media have got a lot to answer for as well. Philip Pullman said this about 15 years ago. All stories teach whether the storyteller intends them to teach or not. They teach the world we create, they teach the morality we live by. Jesus taught in stories. We remember stories. And the stories we get faced about end-of-life decision-making are hard cases. People like Diane Pretty, Terry Pratchett. We're faced with stories that make assisted dying seem like the nice way out. Films, films have got such a lot in them that make you think assisted dying is nice and easy. If you're older like me, The English Patient, The Sea Inside, Million Dollar Baby. But recently the film Breathe came out. Now Breathe actually explores assisted dying in different ways. But still at the end it comes over as being the right thing to have done. And these are the stories that people watch. We watch and we take on board, often uncritically. And how many of you have had friends who've had really crap care in hospital towards the end of their lives? Those stories live on. The stories of those who die with good palliative care are not often the ones that are heard really well. People do have bad experiences, the postcode lottery. Bad stories are remembered, the fear of bad medical care. But in all of this, complexity is hidden. People withdraw requests for assisted dying. You ask any palliative care consultant. People do change their minds. What you see when you're young and fit is very different to when you're older. There is a pressure not to be a burden, not to impact on your family and friends. And look how much nursing care costs are. 
there's a, 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 short, a short little soundbite. Where there's a will, there's an anxious relative. King Lear's daughters, if you like Shakespeare, still exist. There is a perception that life might not be worth living. It's illegal in the UK to end life. The evidence is that in the UK, doctors are far less likely to do it than in many other countries. There is good palliative care, but it's funded mainly in the voluntary sector. In the UK, we emphasize advanced care planning to enable people to take control of living at the end of their lives. There's an organization called Dying Matters that tries to encourage us again to think, how do we want the end of our lives to be so that they're good? Refusing treatment is okay in the UK. You don't have to carry on having treatment that you don't need or want. So as you sit here this evening, what do you think about euthanasia and where have your thoughts and values come from? Should it be legal? Is it right? How about assisted suicide? Assisted suicide is being helped to end your life. Euthanasia is having somebody do it all for you. What would it make to change your views? And what might a Christian response be to all of this? Bearing in mind there's a real risk to the vulnerable of legalization of assisted suicide. There's a real risk to the vulnerable of legalizing euthanasia. And that's demonstrated in other countries in the world where it has been legalized. Thou shalt not murder, Cain and Abel. We didn't stick to that very long. The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Proverbs, deliver those who are drawn towards death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? Love our neighbors as ourselves. What is love of neighbor? Is it loving to end the life of the neighbor? Is it loving to make that neighbor feel valued enough to want to continue to live? Is it loving to walk the journey of suffering with them? In Corinthians, we're told what love is. It's patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it's not boastful. It doesn't demand its own way. It forgives. It hates injustice. It rejoices in the truth. It never gives up or loses faith. It's always hopeful and it endures. In our country, and often in prayer for healing, we can be very physically focused. But what would life be like if we never faced adversity? What does suffering do for us? And this is something I've been pondering on a lot more recently. Because there is something about suffering that is part of our Christian journey. And it produces fruit. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. There's something too about the challenge from scripture and from God to be content in all circumstances. And there's something too about suffering maybe helping us to grow in our love of Christ. What is the value of life? We are loved, created individually, to be in community, 
by a loving God who has redeemed us through the life and death of his son and his resurrection and his ascension that we're thinking about this week and as we wait for Pentecost. God loves us and gives us an inherent dignity. How does that mean that we as Christians need to work in the world today? Our response, we need to become like the men of Issachar, who knew the times and knew what to do. We also need to be aware of the danger of becoming like the elder brother. We do need to remember the relevance of God in all of this in a society that might like to pretend that God has no relevance at all. So I would say the challenge to you today, the challenge to me today, is informed intercession. That is finding out more about it. The Christian Medical Fellowship website, who I'm here representing today, has got some fantastic resources for schools for A-level that are great to read. I use them now. They're not just for schools for A-level. But look, loads of these ethical issues. Do some more reading. When you see it in the papers, find out more about it. And pray. And prayer is not just about doing this to God. We need to listen to him as we read his word and let him speak to us through his word. And as we just sit before him in intercession and listen to what he says to us. And we need to discern, discern what is he nudging us to do? What's he asking us to do in the small situations and in the big ones? And we need to remember that when we listen, the Hebrew word for listen, Shema, actually carries with it something about action. It's hear and obey. So become informed. Find out what's going on. It's not that difficult. The value of life. What is it? What is God calling you to do?